All right, uh, Genesis chapter 1. We're beginning today looking at uh, how Jesus relates not only to the story of Moses we've been doing his life, but really to the story of the entire Bible. See, there's this concept I want you to have today of the one. There's a film that came out, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago called The Matrix, where they were always looking for the one. And a lot of movies have this idea of someone who's going to come and they're going to fix this problem. And you're looking for the guy who will come and fix this problem. A lot of Westerns, I remember Clint Eastwood movies, where they were looking for the guy who would come in and bring peace and order to the local town. And uh, you're looking for that one guy who can come in and get it done. Okay. Well, the Bible has a similar theme, except this is the theme throughout through which all those other themes that are written in our hearts that we see in the movies all the time, who is the one who has the force, who's the representative, who's the one who's going to bring it all together, it really comes from something that God has placed in our hearts for his plan for his people throughout the ages. Okay, I'm going to start from the very beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, and uh, he separated the land from the seas, and then the trees grew, and then the animals came, and then he created Adam and Eve, and everything was perfect, and he put them in the garden. And when it was all said and done at the end of Genesis chapter 1, it says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold. And whenever the Bible says behold, it means to look or pay attention. They're making a point, okay? And look, pay attention. Everything at that point was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. That is God's design, that everything is beautiful, everything is good. And then God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, this perfect place. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, a lot of times I've just wondered this. If God made everything good and he wanted everything to be good, then why in the world did he put in the middle of the garden that one tree? That one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right now they already had a knowledge of good. Why even give them the option at evil? This is something I want you to understand from just from God's perspective, and I think we all understand this as well, is if you want someone to love you, inherent in the idea of love is also the idea of choice. If someone doesn't have a choice, it's difficult to love. Listen, love is a choice. So God didn't put a bunch of choices out there to where they could easily mess it up, but in order for them to demonstrate love, commitment, faithfulness, obedience to the God who created them, he had to at least give them one option. Now, the smart thing would have been to do at that point in the Middle East, there's that one tree, get on a boat and move to Albuquerque, right? Like, get as far away from that one tree as you can, all right? But here they are. It's in the middle of the garden. Now, chapter 3, devil's been kicked out of heaven. He's taken the form of a serpent. And he says, did God really say that you couldn't eat of this tree? And Eve said, well, God said, if we do it, we'll die. Now, what what's, what's the serpent does next? He says to the woman, calls God a liar, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, 
knowing good and evil. Now, here's the only way they're going to be like God at this point is before they knew only good, but now they're going to know evil. My friends, listen, this, there's old Bob Seeger's song. I know I'm dating myself a little bit, but I, I want you to fill it in if you know. I wish I didn't know now what? What I didn't know back then, right? And man, it, it, isn't there a lot of evil and a lot of ugly that you've become exposed to over the years that you would say, I wish I didn't know now what I didn't know then. And I'm sure Adam and Eve, at the moment their eyes were opened, they had that same wish as well. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then, only after Adam did it, the eyes of both were open, and all the ugly that we see in our world today sprung from that moment in history. That one choice to walk away from the love of God. So God comes down from heaven, and now he's setting out, here's what the ramifications are for the sin that you chose. And God said to the servant, because you have done this, you're cursed above all the livestock, but then God makes a promise to the devil. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, I don't necessarily like the way the ESV translates this because the word, the word here for bruise is just a little bit different in both places. But the word here for bruise is more like he will bruise and crush, whereas the other one is like to injure. So there's this promise here that someday this seed of the woman, an offspring of the woman is going to come and she's going to crush this, this offspring of the woman. He's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to put an end to the evil and the disruption and the disharmony and the pain that the devil brought to the earth, tempting both Eve and Adam. So that's what creation is looking for at this point. Genesis 3.15, there it is. Just as soon as there's sin, just as there is sin in the Bible, literally in the next paragraph, there is redemption in the Bible. There is a new hope. And so the rest of the Bible is just the story of looking for that seed of the woman who will come and is going to crush the devil and get us back to God's original plan. So you, if you would flip your Bibles, you would go to Genesis chapter 4. And it says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived, and she bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, if you haven't read anything else in the Bible to this point, just one, two, and three, and someday the offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the devil, at this point you're reading, and now she has a son with the help of the Lord, what are you probably going to think? Is Cain the one? Is Cain the one that's going to set this straight? And even if he's not, look at the very next verse. It says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Maybe one of these is the one. I wonder, maybe it's one of these two guys. Man, let's just hope. Now, the story goes, if you read down through there, that Abel is making an offering of the first flocks. He gave his very best to the Lord, whereas Cain came as a farmer and just gave some. He gave his leftovers. He didn't, get, he didn't write his first check to the Lord. He, he wrote his tenth. 
And he was jealous because obviously it, it says that the Lord accepted Abel's offering because he gave him first fruit right off the top, the best that he had. So because he was jealous of his brother Abel, Cain spoke to him and said, while they were out in the field, come out here. And Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. So you read this. Well, obviously Cain's not the one. And Abel's dead. He's not the one either. So you flip over a couple chapters. Does this big old lineage, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, begat, 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 begat. And then it says, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. Now, when you see it just putting out there, here's another son. What are you going to start thinking? Maybe this is the one. And he called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Now, that harkens back to Genesis 3. Remember the promise that God made to Adam? He says that you're going to have hard work and the, the ground's not going to cooperate for you. And th through thorns and thistles, you're going to have to bring forth fruit from the ground. And so you read this here in Genesis 5. Oh, this is the guy who's going to undo what Adam did, the curse on Adam. Maybe Noah is the one. It says, even in Genesis 6, 8, it said, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, to which everybody is going, hurrah, he's the one. And God says to him, I'm going to destroy everything. Oh, this is how God's going to make all things right. He's going to wipe out all the bad people, and he's going to start all over again with Noah. So God brings this big flood. All the animals come on the ark, and man, it sure, it sure sounds like Eden. Then Noah gets off the ark with his three sons, his wife, his daughters-in-law. It says, now... Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. Well, that's good, man. We're getting the garden again. This is awesome. But then Noah awakes from his wine. Why did he have to wake up from his wine? Because he got drunk. He got all lit up. And then the youngest son saw him there when he was so drunk. I guess I can talk about this. Maybe this is PG-13. But he was so drunk, he took off all his clothes. Now, I went to WVU. If you saw somebody running around without their clothes, you, could, you knew they were probably pretty drunk. And this is what he's done. He, he's laying there buck naked. His son comes in and laughs at him. And the other sons are ashamed of that. And now because Noah was drunk, he's mad at his son. So he starts cursing his son, his grandson. Cursed be Cain and a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. Almost introducing the, the concept of slavery so you see here we thought Noah was the one but then he gets drunk and he starts swearing at his grandkids yes he's not the one and then we come to Genesis chapter 12 and you got all the begats 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 and then you have a guy named Abram and God calls him one day when he's really old it says now the Lord said to Abram go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who blessed you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now you read this, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and what are you going to start thinking about Abraham here? 
Maybe what? He's the one. Maybe he's the one that's going to fix all this because all the nations of the world are going to be blessed because of him. But then we see literally, that's in chapter 12, verse 3. You just have to go seven verses before Abram messes it up. There's a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he says to his, Sarah's wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live because you're so beautiful. So here's what you are to do. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. Notice how he words this here. I want you to lie and say you're my sister, but this is really for your good Sarah. He's trying to spare his own life. But what he's going to do is he's going to allow them to take his wife to be some other man's wife. To go to Pharaoh's house. So you really got to be thinking at this point, man, this isn't no perfect guy. What's going on? And not only that, that he messed that up with Pharaoh, now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Now, remember, the Lord said that she'd have children, but she hasn't had it yet, so she's kind of taking matters into her own hands. She says, go into my servant. She's got this young 30-year-old servant there, Abraham's 90-year-old man. Go into my servant, and it may be so that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now, guys, I, I got some really strong advice for you here. Um, you may have never even thought this before, but if your wife encourages you, encourages you to go see another woman other than her and she tells you it's okay, she doesn't really mean it. All right? That's where you say, oh, honey, I love you. You're still beautiful. Why would I ever want to be with any woman other than you? Thank you for the permission, but all I want to do is look at you all the days until death do us part. I never want to be a, no, honey, really, I'm getting old. I'm just, no, no. Just remember that. Just in case, just in case your wife gives you permission, bad idea, okay? So we see that Abraham, guess what? He's not the one. He's not the one. And so we go through Abraham and Isaac, and he blows it. Jacob, he blows it. His son Reuben gets with his mother-in-law. Simeon and Levi, they go out and murder people. Judah gets with his daughter-in-law and a prostitute. I mean, it's just mess after mess. Not the one, not the one, not the one, not the one. You close Genesis 50. None of these guys are the one. We've just been through 2,000 years of human history. None of these guys are the one. When shall ever, ever come? And then you flip the page, you go to the book of Exodus. And when you come to the book of Exodus, it says, Now a man from the house of Levi went, and took as his wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, what are you thinking? It's a new book. It's a new chapter. At this point, what are you thinking? Maybe Moses is the one. 
And so there's this great story. Maybe he's the great savior of the world. So they put him out in the River Nile, and now he's being raised as the prince of Egypt, and everything's going great. And one day Moses is 40 years old, and everybody's got to be thinking maybe he's the guy who's going to make all things new. But one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, speaking of the Hebrews, and he looked on their burdens. And you might be reading this and thinking, this is where he's going to fix it. He looked on their burdens. He realized that he was the one. And he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Yeah, here it comes. Here it comes. He's going to be the one. He's going to step up and fix it. And he looks this way and he looks that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and he hit him in the sand. He murdered a man for no one to see. But then he got caught. And then we see that Moses is just a flat-out sneaky murderer. And then you got to answer the question, is he the one? The answer is what? No, he's not the one. So we've been studying the life of Moses, and now the Hebrew people are just wandering around in the desert. And they realize Moses isn't the one. And they're sitting here, and this is why you see, remember we've been studying the last few weeks how they're all the time saying, we need another leader, we need another leader, we need another leader. They're, what they're hearkening back to is not just their unselfishness, is we are looking for the one. That's who we need. And so God speaks through Moses to remind the people to give them hope. That guy's still coming. This is what he writes in Deuteronomy 18. God says to Moses to speak to the people. God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. He's going to be a Jew. And I'm going to put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. He's never going to make a mistake. Every word that comes out of his mouth will be God's word as soon as it's uttered. Because when he speaks, he speaks for me, he will speak as me. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So that, that one is coming. And so you go through the Bible. I mean, you, you, a lot of you know the Old Testament stories. I'm, I'm not going to go through them all today. But you go through people like Samson took the Nazarite vow, and then pretty soon you find out about Samson what? He's not the one. And then you come to Saul, who's chosen as the first king of Israel. And then obviously what? He's not the one. And then here comes David, who's anointed a man after God's own heart. You're thinking, maybe David is the one. And then he blows it with Bathsheba and murders a man. And everybody, well, he's not the one. And well, maybe it's his son Solomon who sits on the, he's the wisest man. And then he goes out and chases after God. Then clearly he's not the one. And king after king, not the one, not the one, not the one, not the one. 300 years after Solomon, Isaiah writes this. People are saying, when will the one ever come? Is God slow in keeping his promise? Will we ever see this one? And Isaiah writes, you want to know about the one? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive, bear a son, shall call his name Emmanuel. It means God with us. 
Later, Isaiah writes of him, God looking at his son, the Messiah to come. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. The one is still coming. He just hasn't come yet. And then prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet from the time of of Isaiah all the way to the 4th century, to the 5th century with Malachi, they're speaking of the one is coming, the one is coming, the one is coming, the one is coming. And then 400 years of silence, nobody's hearing anything. And you got to believe that the Jewish people with all the trouble they've been through and all the believers of God outside of that nation, they got to be thinking, man, is the one ever going to come? Because the pagan Romans have taken over the world. They're ruthless. They're taxing us to death. When shall we ever see an end to this burden? It's been five, 6,000 years now. Then we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In six months, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin. Why is that significant? Because 700 years before said, this is going to be the sign. This is going to be the sign to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And to say it again, in case you missed it the first time, the virgin's name was Mary. Now, if you know Isaiah 7 and you read this, then you're thinking, could this be the one? He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. She tried to discern what type of greeting this might be. Could I be the virgin of Isaiah 7? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The word Jesus means Savior, the one who saves. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In other words, Mary, this son that is in your womb, he is the one. Amen. Woo! I just remember when I got to this in the sermon prep, I just the hair came up on my arms. I was like, whoa. Amazing how you can read a story a thousand times over and then every once in a while the Holy Spirit just gets you. This is the one. This is the one about whom we light these candles. This is the one about whom that we sing. The next chapter, she gave birth to this firstborn son and she wrapped him in in swaddling clothes. She laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. Then the angels appeared before the lowest form of society they had that day, and that was the shepherds. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you this day in the city of David, there is born one who will be called Christ the Lord. In other words, who's born tonight? The one. The one. Now, fast forward 30 years. Jesus is with his disciples and uh, three of them, Peter, James, and John, and he's walking up a mountain. And as they get toward the, co- the top, it's been six days, Jesus took them and here they are up top and he was transfigured. It means his appearance changed before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white, of, white as light. This is hearkening back toward the days of Moses. And behold, there appeared to them, look who's with them now, Moses and Elijah. Moses, chief lawgiver, Elijah being the chief of all the prophets in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Bible. And the three of them are having a conversation there together. And you can see if you're Peter, John, James, and John, and you see the big three having a conversation here, Messiah, lawgiver, chief prophet, you're like, hey, this is pretty cool. But Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, I would think James and John would say at this point, well, where are we going to stay, all right? I'm thinking Peter's saying, I'll share a tent with you, and those guys can cast lots for Moses and Elijah, but I'm, I'm staying with the lead guy. Now, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, now watch this. You got the big dogs there. You got Moses. You got Elijah. But just so Peter, James, and John aren't confused about the hierarchy, about the order, about who the one is between the three of them, God just says it straight up. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The same thing Moses predicted on behalf of God back in Deuteronomy 18. When the one comes, you got to listen to him. And everything that we see written from the law and the prophets, all points back to the one, the man, Christ Jesus. This is what Jesus was explaining after he rose from the dead to two of his followers. He says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Wouldn't it be great, like what we're talking about today and prophecies fulfilled, if Jesus would just say, okay, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to show you every prophecy in here that has to do with me. That would be a great Bible study time, would it not? And then he said to them, he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and also the Psalms, all the poetic books, they must be fulfilled. And then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and he said, this is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day he would rise from the dead. And that, as a result of that, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. And that, my friends, is the story of the Bible. That repentance in the name of Jesus should be proclaimed to you today because of what was written starting back in Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation 22 that you might know That Jesus Christ loved you. He is the one. He came to give his life for you. 
to make all things new again. And that by repenting, what does that mean? It means to change your mind about how you live your life, to turn from sin, and to believe what Jesus exclaimed here, that everything that's written about in that Old Testament, that Hebrew Bible, points forward to the cross, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like me and like you. And my friends, that is the Christmas story. That's why he came is so that you might turn from your sin and embrace the Savior who loves you and wants to give you a new start. My question is, of all the testimony that you see in the Scriptures, do you believe Jesus is the one? You sit here on Christmas morning, I realize a lot of you are here because, man, you were already bought in. My prayer is that you're even more bought in right now. But even greater than that, here's my ask. One thing to believe the stories about Jesus, it's another thing to believe in Jesus. To repent means to turn from the selfish-led life to make him your king.